I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The Orphan Drug Act has provided critical incentives that have helped fuel the development of scores of drugs to treat rare diseases. But health experts at Johns Hopkins Medicine are calling for reform of the act to stop potential abuses by drug makers they say have gotten huge subsidies and tax breaks for drugs that have been used far more broadly than the law intended to reward. We spoke to Martin McCarry, professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins and a co-author of a recent commentary in the American Journal of Clinical Oncology about the Orphan Drug Act, the unintended role it is playing in the growing controversy over drug prices, and why he thinks reform that protects the original intention of the act is needed. Marty, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. In a recent issue of the American Journal of Clinical Oncology, you and your colleagues call for reform of the Orphan Drug Act to restore it to its rare disease mission. We're going to talk about the Orphan Drug Act, how it's performed, how it's been used in other ways than intended, and the consequences of all this. Let's start with the act itself. For those listeners who may not be familiar with the Orphan Drug Act, can you provide a little history and overview? Sure. Um, Back in the early 1980s, uh, the country was really moved from a television series called Quincy, where there was a an individual with a rare disease, and it was this patient. The person had this sort of jerking movements of their arms, and it it came uh, out through the show and a lot of public discussion that drug companies really are not fiscally driven to develop drugs for these poor folks with rare diseases and rare cancers because the market size is just small. And it made sense as a country for us to pass the Orphan Drug Act, which was passed a year later in 1983 after um, actually the gentleman from the show testified in real life before Congress. That was actor Jack Klugman? Yeah, that was him. And, um, you know, he was the physician. And and really, uh, folks said, let's create financial incentives for pharmaceutical companies that develop drugs for these patients with rare diseases. Well, what incentives does the act provide to drug makers to develop drugs for rare diseases, and and how effective has it been? Well, I think it's been very effective, and a lot of great things have come out of the act. The incentives include the highly coveted seven-year marketing exclusivity, uh, direct government grants, uh, sometimes as, as much as $2 million, in government grants um, towards the research, and an expedited review. And as you know, when a drug gets approved, every day can be worth sometimes millions of dollars. So to get an expedited review, say, within four to six months, as opposed to the the standard uh, 16 to 18 months, um, that also has big lucrative benefits. So um, it's been been very effective in getting drugs uh, through for patients with rare diseases. And beyond the specific benefits the act provides drug makers, as the market has evolved, there are other economic incentives drug makers have discovered in pursuing orphan drugs. Can you talk a little about those? 
Well, one thing that um, has been an, a trend that we found in our research study is that increasingly companies will have drugs passed as orphan drugs, but then they'll be very popular and used off-label widely uh, soon after approval. And that's because they work. So if these drugs are drugs that address a new mechanism of um, addressing immune function, uh, like uh, rituximab, then they're, they work for other conditions. So some of these drugs that have come through as orphan drugs have had broad indications after they're being passed. Well, let's talk about that. You say despite its benefits, the Orphan Drug Act has often been abused. Uh, how has it been abused? Well, no one ever envisioned Crestor to be an, op an orphan drug or drugs that are used to treat chronic fatigue syndrome or in inflammatory bowel disease. These are um, standard um, drugs that are uh, out there, and some of these are blockbuster drugs. That is, they're, they're what we call drugs that have made over a billion dollars in revenue. Now, I, just to be clear, I, I think it is good for a drug company to profit from a drug that they develop. But I think as a society, we've really come, especially lately, to the point where we, we really think that there needs to be some checks. We need to, we need to ensure that these uh, profits are reasonable and there's not egregious price gouging because of monopoly power. And that's where I think there's an there's a outrage right now that we don't know how to direct, but we just know that there's some egregious practices going on out there. One of them is passing drugs as an orphan drug, even though it's kind of known the intent and the application, is not for patients with rare diseases. It's for broad populations. And that's where we're starting to ask, how many of the top-selling drugs are were actually passed as orphan drugs? And from our research that was published in the journal, we found that 44% of drugs passed last year were orphan drugs, and 7 out of the 10 blockbuster drugs last year, our highest profiting drugs on the market, were orphans. So clearly, the, the act has lost its mission to patients with rare diseases. And, and in terms of the drug pricing controversy we have with us today and, and the growing share of spending on specialty drugs, how, how do you see the, the Orphan Drug Act fitting into that controversy? Well, it probably is highlighting some of the market flaws. And one is that when you have a standard um, approval process for non-orphan drugs, that's 18 months with a backlog of over 4,000 generic drugs right now, people are starting to say, hey, that is not right. I mean, every drug should be should get an expedited review. And those being proposed for orphan conditions or those with rare diseases should get in this particularly privileged expedited review and other privileges. But the, the baseline comparison for for the group of non-orphan <clears throat> drugs is egregious. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing competitive drugs now deal with this massive backlog, and for that reason, we're, not, we're seeing some prices um, lose their checks. So when you, have, when you have competitive drugs not being able to get through the FDA, of course that's going to affect pricing. Uh, and whenever you have marketing exclusivity, of course, that's going to affect pricing. I think we, we need to ask 
where can we provide these orphan benefits to the right drugs and fix the problem for the non-orphan drugs because they are facing a problem. And the reason all this is important is that insurance premiums are going through the roof. And to be honest with you, I have patients complaining to me about their insurance premiums. Americans are angry about their health insurance costs, and they're going through the roof. And deductibles are crushing people right now, and they're crushing businesses. And if you look at one of the areas of healthcare spending that has surged last year, it was drug pricing. And guess what? It's not going to get any better. We've got a series of uh, biologic agents that are coming out. I can think of three that are going to are going to be good drugs for patients with those conditions. They're also going to be used widely, and they're also going to be super expensive. So um, we need to fix the process. Well, you've alluded to this, but one of the things creating the opportunity for drug companies to take advantage of the act is the development of precision medicine. The growing understanding of the molecular drivers of disease and the, and the stratification of cancers and other maladies based on the genetic mutations driving them. The, the Orphan Drug Act predated the mapping of the human genome. How easily can we stratify diseases today into orphan-sized populations? And what effect has this had on the way the pharmaceutical industry has, has sought to capitalize on the Orphan Drug Act? Well, it's a great point. And I've proposed that we have a group of Clinical practicing doctors take a look at a drug that's being proposed to the FDA and ask the question, is this a drug that's likely to be used on a broad scale? And if so, remove its designation as an orphan drug because you can't say that a drug for a certain type of breast cancer in a certain age population of women, in other words, a population salami sliced or carved out so that it meets the definition of a rare disease group, and then use it broadly for breast cancer. And we've seen that with, with lung cancer. We've seen talk of precision uh, medicine uh, allowing us to apply a certain medication to a certain type of blood, lung cancer. But then guess what? It's good for other types of lung cancer. No surprise. And to be honest with you, this movement of precision medicine has been an advance with certain types of cancer, but it has not changed at all other types of cancer treatments. As a cancer surgeon myself, who takes care of a lot of patients with pancreas cancer, I can tell you precision medicine has added nothing to the treatment of pancreas cancer patients today in the United States. Now, that may change in the future, but the over-enthusiasm to develop drugs for these particular narrow indications, when they may work outside of those narrow indications or those those sort of precision targets are just not scientifically valid has outpaced the science and it's outpaced and it's driven the market. And, you know, to me, it's sort of similar to the mapping of the human genome. You know, we were promised when we initially mapped the human genome, when we're, we're spending tons of money on the project years ago, that this would lead to all sorts of cures. Well, guess what? We mapped the human genome. No cures came out of it. And we're still now asking ourselves, how can we um, get in? How can we use um, gene manipulation for for uh, cancer? And to be honest with you, um, we have not gotten the benefit that was uh, claimed when we made that massive investment. And by the way, now you can map the entire human genome in one day. Um, so we've get, we've been told a lot of these promises, 
that just don't pan out. If you look at all clinical trials in cancer care, and you know people are told the hope of clinical trials. Well, sure, there's new breakthroughs come through in the form of clinical trials, but did you know that only about 4% of all clinical trials in American cancer care will yield a significant benefit of the new drug over standard therapy? And of course, some have a worse outcome than standard therapy. So I think people need the context of precision medicine. They need the context of all the claims of a, of a, of a cure on the brink, and they need the context of uh, what we're hearing about when it comes to uh, clinical trials. You mentioned in, in the article that there have been efforts in the past to curb abuses of the Orphan Drug Act, both in the United States and, and outside. What's happened? Well, the, you know, uh, the, the basic premise that I point to in, in an op-ed I, I just published in the Wall Street Journal is that in Japan, if you, the drug becomes a blockbuster, that is, it's making, you know, over a billion dollars, we don't need the taxpayers subsidize those drugs. Those drugs can pay back the taxpayer cost of those grants and subsidies that were initially given from the government from those, those billion-plus-dollar revenues. So we have a graduated income tax for personal taxes and for businesses. How about for drugs in the form of a 1% payback tax after the drug exceeds a billion dollars in sales? I don't think anybody would claim that that payback would discourage companies from creating blockbuster drugs. And at the same time, it could help push through uh, these FDA drugs that are backlogged by creating the infrastructure and support needed at the FDA to get drugs through to provide some competition. Well, most recently, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2013 made efforts to reduce what you referred to as salami slicing. What did it do and, and how effective has it been? Well, there was some effort to change the criteria so when the FDA looks at a drug, they would apply the, the benefits a little more um, uh, critically. But I don't, you know, from our research, uh, it hasn't really worked. When you have 44% of all drugs passed last year in uh, 2014 as orphan drugs, um, it's clearly a practice that's gone blockbuster. And in fact, when you talk to researchers, in the private biotech world, they tell you, yeah, we try to find a population or a disease that meets the orphan designation so that we can propose it as an orphan drug. And we just shouldn't be having gaming of the system uh, as we're having today. This law was intended to help people with stromal tumors and leukemias and lymphomas and children and folks with renal failure that come from rare causes. The patients we see in the hospital that have truly rare diseases, we're saying as a country, we care about you, and we're not just going to let the market of what's a diet drug drive pharmaceutical development. We're going to pay attention to rare diseases, and I think we need to restore that mission. Well, you say thoughtful reforms are needed to protect the original intent of the Orphan Drug Act while curbing the abuses. You outlined several components of potential reform. Can, can you walk us through those? Yeah, so I think a, a, a drugs that are proposed as orphan drugs should be reviewed by an independent committee of practicing physicians, number one, who can evaluate whether or not its use is truly uh, intended or, or likely to be off-label. 
and for broader populations. In other words, if they, they can sniff through it and say, this is not really going to be used for this orphan population. This is going to be used broadly for breast cancer or some other common uh, condition like high cholesterol. Um, number two, there could be some better criteria that the FDA uses when they take a drug in as an orphan. They should be able to apply the drug not just and apply the law not just with the letter of the law but the spirit of the law, asking is it going to truly help these populations. And number three, a graduated tax to pay back the taxpayer grants and subsidies that support orphan drugs and also speed the development for generic drugs uh, for which there's a massive backlog and that back backlog is affecting prices through less competition. And finally, I think there's something that we can't write into law and something that has really struck a chord with the American public, and that is we need ethical behavior on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry. We've seen that with certain companies. We've seen moral principles uh, guide decisions in pharma, and I, I think because of egregious examples to the contrary, people are hungry out there for better ethical standards in the industry. What do you do when you have a total monopoly over a drug that is badly needed, and, and not only is it needed, it's needed on a, what you could say in business as a subscription model, that is people need it continuously. You could jack up the price, um, you could recoup your expenses, um, but no one really knows what those wholesale prices are and those expenses are. So more transparency would go a long way, especially in the, in the wholesaler mar marketplace. Hospitals, too, are, are not saints when it comes to drug pricing. There's a markup with any infusion services, and Medicare is required to pay 100% of the markup price. That markup, at minimum, should be transparent. And you've got some political candidates, interestingly, on both sides of the, of the, of the aisle, both saying that Medicare, maybe, you know, we should reevaluate their inability to uh, negotiate prices. The Prescription Drug User Fee Act expires in 2017, and efforts have begun to negotiate a new incarnation of that. Do you expect reform of the Orphan Drug Act to work its way into the legislation? I think right now people are so hungry for some common sense reform that when they see the abuse of the Orphan Drug Act, uh, especially when it was intended for such a good cause, I think it will get reevaluated, and I think we're going to we'll see some changes. But it's going to take people getting out there and saying, let's do something about it. There's a new drug price transparency newsletter that's floating around. There's a flurry of articles, as you've seen, in all the top newspapers and journals. So um, I think we need to get out there, write members of Congress, go to the hearings. And I, I think we've never seen as much enthusiasm now for some common sense reforms with drug pricing as we have today. Marty McCary, professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Marty, thanks so much for your time. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, 
on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.